0: following episode of the Movie Club Podcast can and will contain spoilers. Please be aware of this before you listen. Thank you.
1: They ask me how I need-
0: Hello and welcome to the Movie Club Podcast. This is episode number 11 for, I guess, December 2008. And uh, once again, we are going to be talking about two movies that we've uh, pre-selected ahead of time. The first being Fred Decker's Night of the Creeps, and the second being Joe Dante's Gremlins 2, The New Batch. Uh, so let's go around and introduce all the participants this week, starting with myself. I'm Sean from FilmJunk.com.
2: I am Jay from, uh, um, I guess the documentary blog. (laughs) I haven't updated updated that site in about two months, so I don't know if I'm from there anymore. All right, film junk. Uh, I'm Omar from from film junk.
1: What? What? (laughs) Goddamn! I'm Omar from Twitch.
3: I'm Kurt from Twitch in row three, and I'm Andrew from row three.
1: With so, a glass of water. With a glass
0: of water. <laughs> so, Marina was supposed to be here, but apparently she's caught in traffic and probably won't be taking part, which is unfortunate. Women
1: um, drivers.
0: <laughs> so, um, we're going to start with Night of the Creeps. Um, now, I guess, I don't know if, uh, if Omar, if you want to kind of start with this one. I, I believe this was your choice, although I know we're all kind of fans yeah. of this movie but um, why don't you kind of give us a little bit of an intro into this movie and why you're a big fan of it.
1: Uh, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I chose this movie because uh, it's one of my favorite favorite horror films of all time, really. Uh, it's, um, I don't really know why I like it so much because, you know, looking at it, if you if you look at it right now, it, it's kind of cheesy. It's uh, not that well acted, but uh, once you uh, stop and listen to the writing and uh, and 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 look at the, uh, these homages and, and, and nods to older horror films, then you really start to appreciate it. How how good it is. And how smart it is! Actually, it's—I um, would say it's—it's um, it's like I always compare it to Scream, only ten years before. It, in the sense that it—it it doesn't take itself seriously. It makes fun of itself. It, it makes fun of—it uses uh, convention, horror conventions, and, and 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 has fun with that. And also, like I said, you know, gives is respect to older cinema. And, um, yeah, I've, I've been hooked on this film for years and years uh, since I saw it again on, like, VHS, and I've been collecting, like, all the posters, and I have I recently got the script, the original script for it, and uh, all that sort of stuff. So I'm a huge, huge fan of this film.
2: But so not sure. a big enough fan to buy the alien head, apparently.
1: <laughs> well, not rich enough rich enough fan, yeah, I saw the <laughs> alien head on eBay once one of the one of the aliens from the opening of the film and uh, I think it went well over a thousand bucks that head. so yeah, too rich for my blood
0: well, it is interesting Especially n- now it is interesting to note that this movie is not available on d v d as of yet. Um, mm-hmm. no, I, I guess you were saying before that it is probably forthcoming maybe in the next year or something. Um, but hopefully yeah, people yeah. out there had a chance to find it one way or another to discuss it because it is a really good movie. Um,
1: you know, you, you can, it, it is, you know, semi easily available. If you look at it, if you go on eBay, you can get it on, you know, VHS, your original if you want to be, you know, legal about it and you can get it the original VHS, you can get on laser, and it's been showing on TV right now in the States in HD, which is awesome. So finally you can see it in, in the widescreen and, 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 you know, good good uh, quality stuff.
3: There's um, also a 35-millimeter print floating around because it played in Toronto in the early October or end of September 2007. And the print was in pretty remarkable
4: shape, actually. That's funny. It yeah. played in Minneapolis here about maybe about a month or two ago also.
1: Oh, really? Oh, yeah, nice. Because yeah, it, yeah, it followed uh, when they released the Monster Squad. They uh, started to have screening of Monster Squad and then... Uh, I think the Alamo Draft house did it, and then they threw in Night of the Creeps there as well, and then they did the same thing in Toronto, like a week after I left there last year, which is pissing me off, but but yeah.
4: So um, can I assume that I'm the only guy here looking at this from a kind of a different perspective, as the first time I saw this movie was about a half an hour ago?
0: Probably. Probably.
4: Yeah. <laughs> Which is surprising to me. This seems like one of those movies that would be on constantly on Showtime and HBO back in the late '80s, and and maybe it was, but I can't imagine how I missed it. I just never never saw it. In fact, I HBO, never really. Heard... Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. No, I was going. Uh,
1: okay,
4: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn delay, you foreigners! I tell you. Um, I, I was going to say that.
1: Um. Actually, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that HBO released it on VHS in the states back in the day, so mm, okay. it probably was playing on HBO all the time.
3: Yeah, I mean, we had that VHS tape, and we played that movie so many times because it's just a great movie that just sits on in the background, and you can just watch it on a scene-by-scene scene basis as much as a narrative yeah. we wore it's one of the few tapes vhs tapes that we watched enough times that the tape broke and then that was probably yeah. 10 years ago and maybe longer than 10 years ago and until it i saw that print in toronto i i it was not an easy movie to find
0: well so andrew why don't you give us your thoughts on this i mean you're saying that you think this is something that should be a classic that a lot of people have seen and um why do you feel that way, I guess?
4: Well, I've just, uh, you know, moving around all the different movie blogs and whatnot, um, and I've heard Kurt mention it a couple times. It just seems like everybody's seen this movie or everybody's heard about it, at least people of our age, um, and for whatever reason, I haven't. So now I'm watching this thing tonight, and what it's about an hour and a half long, and I would say for 45 minutes I was... Watching the movie going, this is pretty stupid, and I think all these people like this movie because, you know, it's something from their childhood. It's like, I don't know, it would be like throwing, I don't know, any of these kind of movies from the 80s at somebody now who's never seen it. And they would just look at it and go, this is stupid. Um, And that's kind of how I looked at it. But then (laughs) I started to be able to kind of put myself in that ilk. And I actually got into it quite a bit, especially the last, like, 45 minutes or so. So, But I definitely was looking at it from the point of view of, you know, I was trying to put myself back. Like, if I threw weird science at somebody who'd never seen it before, they might think it's completely unfunny and stupid. I always
3: think of it as Big Trouble in Little China. It reminds me just the way it, it mashes so many genres together. And uh, yeah. it's a little bit all over the place in the first few minutes before it settles down and starts to actually tell a story.
4: Well, like Omar said in the beginning, I, I mean it's it's horribly acted. It, it it was it was really grating on my nerves actually for a while. The, I understand that it's not taking itself seriously, but even so, um, it, it it just it, it's really bad. Like at least you could find something like the kid from european vacation i hate that kid um yeah it's just so very good yeah but i mean once you overlook that it's not so bad i think the parts where it almost is sort of taking it seriously a little bit more are are the better parts of the film where it's actually trying to do some fun things instead of being instead of be trying to be funny and and witty and campy um, those are the parts that just made me say, wow, this is not funny and not not smart. But then when it tried to take itself a little bit more on the serious side, then I really got into it. So, I don't know.
0: Well, for, for me, it walks an interesting line between, like, um, you know, it, it feels like it is poking fun of itself and, and things like that. And it is. But at the same time, you know, you bring up the bad acting and stuff. And it's almost like it's in the zone where it's like, at times I'm like, is this bad acting or is it bad acting on purpose? And like, for me, it was, it's, it's just the right sort of mix of like comedy and serious like horror to, to just, it's, it's just right in the zone. I don't know how else to
2: describe it. I think um, it's saying it's right in the zone is probably the best way. It is in the zone. Like it sounds, that's, that's, pretty much it. Sounds pretty good. But, uh,
0: you know, I didn't You're see this, I, I didn't see this when it first came out, like right in the 80s. Like I saw this on, video some at some point in the 90s so maybe even just looking back on it with that you know maybe 10 years in the past helped a bit but um, yeah
1: yeah, yeah I think actually the acting is you know bad just I don't think there's a reason for it I, I don't think there's intentionally bad acting I just it's just bad actors in it um, Jason Lively that was I think that he was probably chosen because it was the film he did after European Vacation. And that was a big success, so I guess they were trying to put a name into it or something like that. And uh, he was like the token nerd, I guess, at the time. I guess the Carradine brother was either too old or or didn't want to do this. Uh, John Hess uh, just
3: it. a twinkle
1: in someone's eye. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think, yeah, the, the weakest point of the film is – the. I think the acting, but but what I really really dig about it is the writing, because um, well uh, because it's it, it's the kind of jokes that you have to you know you have to watch it again and and because they're pretty subtle usually and and there are a lot of visual gags in the film as well like um, Brad the Bradster the uh, the villain of the piece where he uh, after uh, uh, the crippled uh, guy calls uh, tells him to go practice goose stepping and uh, the next scene you see him in uh, East eastern german or german sports jersey when he's talking to the phone uh, to uh, with his girlfriend which is, uh, i thought it was really funny and um, it's, it's these subtle things and also i i don't know why but it felt at the time that Fred Decker was like hooked or obsessed with Ed Wood for some reason, because there's a constant, constant nods to Ed Wood in his film.
4: It's from, even playing uh, in
1: the film at one point. Oh yeah. And the, and the opening scene when the girl, uh, is on the phone, she asks asks her friend if she went to see plan nine, uh, when, uh, Tom Atkins comes to the comes to the first crime scene where they find the body in front of the sorority house. He stops to smell the flowers just like Bela Lugosi does in plana, and his car and his siren whale is taken straight from that movie as well so i don 't know why he was so hooked on, it. and it was, it, it was years before Tim Burton made him famous uh, you know made him hip for all the hipsters to uh, enjoy. So I think these sort of things probably went really unnoticed at the time when it was put out. I'm pretty sure.
3: Okay, how do you think the reaction was – all the names in the films it's, its I don't know if it's clunky today because these names have only gotten significantly bigger. Um, I yeah. mean, the, the cops' names are Cameron Landis and Raimi. The main characters' yeah. names are Ramiro Hooper and Cronenberg. I mean, there 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 gets a point where, um, you know, maybe maybe. Cronenberg was because I mean Cronenberg was just sort of coming into his own at the same point. I mean he had done Shivers, which this movie is a big nod to. Um, oh yeah. But you know it's it's just interesting that uh, all the names that he picked, and he's pretty obvious with the names. Like it's it's kind it's almost a bit awkward in two thousand and eight with the with the names. It's almost like oh, yeah, it yeah. feels like the movie's trying like a bit too hard.
1: Definitely, definitely. But uh, at, that, at that time, um, you know, Cameron and Raimi were not huge names for the mainstream. Agreed. Um, yeah, because it's 86, uh, they were two years before, uh, after Cameron had did, did Terminator, right? Wasn't in 84? Yeah, and it was the same year yeah. as
3: Aliens. Yeah,
1: and the Raimi had only done Evil Dead 2, and that, that flopped back in the time, so, uh, yeah, so, I mean, Cronenberg wasn't, wasn't that huge, he, oh, well, he did The Fly that year, I think, and, yeah.
2: Well, you can kind of see, you can see how clunky it might be when watching Doomsday this year, because he, uh, uh, put in, I mean, even though it's, it's maybe not as obvious, and it's only two characters, I think, but the, there was a character named Miller and Carpenter, um, which is a you know ob- obvious connection there, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that when this was done, those names didn't hold as much water as they do now. Definitely, someone like Sam Raimi right. uh, would have gone under the radar. Yeah, definitely.
1: But, but there's Romero also- and
3: Hooper, they were pretty big at the time,
1: yeah. And, and the university they were going to was uh, Corman. Corman University. And, I mean, he uses
3: Dick Miller, which was a uh, Corman uh, regular. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a little cameo in there. He's also got a cameo in Terminator. And, of course, he's also in both the Gremlins films. So he's sort of the uh, connective tissue <laughs> between these two films.
0: Yeah, I, I had to I had to look him up because, like, I was – when I was watching Night of the Creeps and he came on, like, he's just the, the cop in the, the weapons – uh, facility or whatever, right? And I was like, oh, "Wait a minute, wasn't he just in Gremlins?" And like, he's just one of those character actors that you know you see, you know him to to look at him, but I had no idea what his name was. Well,
2: he's and, in uh, Terminator as well. Yeah, he, he plays basically the same part.
3: <laughs> after 1980, it seemed that Dick Miller just basically worked for
2: Joe Dante. Um,
3: <laughs> Joe Dante. Yeah. At that point, um, you know, and. Uh, Occasionally, he would do like a Tales from the Crypt uh, um, episode or something. But me, I'll, he's in every, every even Trapped in Ashes that um, three part compilation film from a couple years ago. I mean, the guy—he's in his seventies now. He hes in that too.
2: He was it's in nice. uh, Pulp Fiction, but his scene was cut.
3: That's right. That's right. He was supposed to be Monster
1: yeah, Joe. That's true. It's
3: true. He's great, though. I mean, it gives a bit of credibility. I'm actually surprised that there is no one named Dante in, because it it actually, I mean, these two movies are paired together nicely because uh, they both have that, um, the movie's made as much to, you know, deconstruct the genre and mash genres together as it is to be a straight-up movie. I mean, I find Night of the Creeps... um, is far more interested in jumping around from bit to bit rather than focusing on its love story. I find it more interesting that the actual relationship between the two guys uh, at the beginning seems far more authentic and warm. I I was almost sad to see the European vacation guy go at the halfway mark, Because, uh, you know, the scene when they're joking around in the dorm room is – it felt, you know, again, it felt like, uh, you know, Edgar Wright and um, Simon Pegg when they were making something like uh, Shaun of the Dead uh, or Hot Fuzz is tapping into that similar kind of energy uh, of the sort of goofy, geeky guys that, you know, sort of fight – bond, whatever, uh, with one another, have that sort of the same. You could substitute the relationship of a, of a girlfriend-boyfriend almost because of the, the way, like that argument they have about, you know, him being an ass or whatever is generally, you see that in a lot of different films, but I can't think of too, too many that I've seen that in before Night of the Creeps.
1: Yeah, you don't see a lot of pillow fightings between two guys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not enough, anyway. Yeah, true.
3: <laughs> well, yeah. We talk yeah, what? About, uh, Go ahead. We should talk about oh. Tom Atkins in the movie because uh, he rules.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's true. that's that's another example of, I mean, is it bad acting or is it good acting? I mean, like, for me, like... Oh, that's the, good
1: acting. That's good acting.
0: Well, I guess. But, I mean, like, like a lot of the, the writing, like you said, the writing is good, but I it, I think it wouldn't be as good if it wasn't delivered, you know, especially his lines anyway, it wouldn't be as good if they weren't delivered by him. Yeah,
1: that's true, true. Well, but, I the, mean, it, he, the, Tom Atkin is basically... He, he's always the same in these movies, basically. He's, he's just being a badass, and that, that's what the character is. He's a Raymond Chandler-loving uh, uh, cop. And uh, So that's, that's basically... So he's a badass. He talks in uh, one-liners, and he delivers them perfectly. So so that's really... Um, he, he fits perfectly in his role, actually.
4: Well, uh, again, at, at the beginning, when he, he kind of uses the same lines of dialogue over and over again, uh, I, it, it didn't work for me at all at first. But then once I got mm. into it and I started to understand the character, then his little stupid lines started to make me smile and, and you know, I just sort of got it.
1: Mm. Like it's some... funny that uh, Decker uh, quoted himself in Monster Squad when uh, the other, uh, uh, the father of the main kid, who's also a cop, Uh, uh, says the same line uh, a guy who's been dead for this in many years doesn't just go get up and walk and which is also in uh, the Monster Squad movie
2: yeah that's weird I wonder if he could have worked that into RoboCop 3 probably
3: (laughs) (laughs) Shane Black worked it into Kiss Kiss Bang Bang at one point Val Kilmer says throw me just in exactly the same way and i think he was the leader of the monster squad so uh uh, there's a connection there yeah Yeah.
2: well i watched this with uh some friends that had never seen it before and um i can't speak for all of them but i think some of them definitely weren't that into it and just thinking about like tom atkins police car. I know when he pulled up in that car there were some comments of why the hell is he driving a car like that and I, I mean I, I guess I can see this movie not playing well to to people who maybe didn't see it when they were kids or, or aren't I dunno open to the uh you know the idea of being of this movie and, and how it clearly jumps from place to place. I mean Fred Decker obviously Wanted to inject every one of his favorite genres in this. I mean, it opens with that space sort of scene, and then it goes to the black and white Ed Wood or 50s sort of slasher thing, and then it's like Revenge of the Nerds, and it's a John Hughes movie, and it's a zombie movie, and it's a cop movie. I mean, he obviously couldn't, you know, make up his mind and was like, I'll just do them all in one. But, um, I think that's hard to handle if you don't go into it with kind of an open mind that, you know, you're, you're by laughing at a lot of this stuff, it's kind of defeating the purpose. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, well, you're, you're laughing at something that's, it's like laughing at the Batman TV show and saying that's stupid. Why would he say that? Or, or why would they do this or that? And, and I mean, it defeats the purpose. Um,
0: well, I was just going to say that I think that that genre of horror comedy is a tricky one to pull off. Like uh, like we should mention Slither because this is a movie that a lot of people think was influenced by Night of the Creeps, uh, which came out a couple of years ago, written and directed by James Gunn. And when that came out, it didn't do so well in theaters. And a lot of people said, hey, you know, this, is, this isn't what people want. They either want to be scared or they want to laugh. They don't want kind of a mixture of both. And it is tricky to pull off, but, I mean, I think Night of the Creeps does it very well.
3: So does Slither. I mean, I think a lot of the people that were big fans of Night of the Creeps or, you know, were unable to track it down on VHS or or whatever, um, Slither absolutely hit the spot in the same kind of way. I mean, it's self-aware. It's kind of goofy, but it doesn't spare the... The splatter and the the blood and guts. I mean, it's not going crazy with it, and it, but at no point, like, at no point do I find um, Night of the Creeps, or for that matter, Slither scary. I mean, they they use horror conventions, but I mean they're they're having fun with the genre. I, you know, just in the, in the way that you go to a um, You know, a haunted house. You're fully aware of the artifice, and, you know, the movie isn't going to entirely work on you as a scare effect. um, But it's just enough, or it's close enough, and then it's balanced enough with the comedy that it makes it it absolutely works i mean evil dead 2 is a is a great comparison it's another one that works very well as there are horror moments or moments where it borders on being legitimately scary but for the most part i mean that is in service of the humor the humor is definitely far more out in front on this one than the actual horror or that's the way it seems to me
4: the the cop car thing that you mentioned um i didn't you know, I didn't pull it together. I didn't realize that it was sort of the director, you know, pulling an homage to some other film. I, because like Jay's friends, like that was my first thought too. I was like, well, that's kind of weird. Why is he driving that car? So I didn't, I didn't get the um, the homage angle. So I started to think about, well, why, why, why is he driving this car? And I, I, I started, to, I thought that it was just because he was sort of because of this traumatic experience that he had when he was a younger cop that he's still just sort of stuck in the 50s or 60s and uh i guess that car is actually older than the 50s but that's kind of that was my thought is it's this guy who's who's struggling with his past and he's still stuck there like he still kind of wears the the noir detective outfit and uh
2: i think you know, that's a i think that's favorite. fair to th- to think that i mean I, I think it it just supports his sort of old-school approach. Like, he's an old-school, hard-boiled detective. And you yeah. definitely don't want to see someone like that pull up in a Trans Am. <laughs> so, <laughs> no,
4: exactly. It wouldn't have made any sense. It's more, it's it's like his inner demons, and he's he's stuck there. And, you know, like, I could see in, well, I guess he dies at the end. But, you know, after conquering the bad guys, I could see him busting out of that and then deciding you know to have the magnum pi car mm-hmm. but yeah yeah so i don't know that's where I, I i but i think you guys are more right about it that it's a that it's an actually an homage to um another genre and another maybe even another specific film that decker was yeah. into but I, not knowing that at the time i was trying to sort of analyze the character maybe maybe too much
1: well, you can see when he's in- introduced in the film, he's. I think you're right that he's stuck in the past, and he's also this old school cop. And and um, he, the the in the scene where he, where he, where he's introduced, you can, he, he wakes up from his dream and he's he's reading. Uh, I think yeah, it's a Raymond Chandler novel. So he's like you said, he's stuck in the past, and uh, that's. That's why he rides the car, and I think it's it's it is that, and also an homage to the older films.
3: Well, yeah, or, I don't think I don't think most of the things that happen in this movie are supposed to make any literal sense. I think that that he just, I mean, and we'll get to it in Gremlins too, which goes even much further. Uh, you know, the love of all these individual scenes from old movies, uh, is enough to drive forth this movie. I mean, he's Hmm. not just from a character and a script, but even from, um, filmmaking, uh, techniques. Like he uses some basic slasher sort of camera work at one point. There's a lot of, um, uh, what are they called? The dolly zooms, like the Vertigo Jaws. You know, the, the he does that three or four times. There is a, I, I thought it was an, an homage to Evil Dead Two or something. There's a point where uh, when Tom Atkins is surrounded by um, the uh, zombie frat boys and he just sort of loses it and 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 gets up and starts shooting. And I don't know how they've done this sort of camera radius thing it's a neat effect um, but it feels like I've seen it somewhere else kind of thing he yeah I mean the movie is far more interested in looking backward than necessarily pushing forward and I, I don't see anything wrong with that I mean um, John Landis and Sam Raimi two names that are very consciously referenced uh, in this film are are, are are big practitioners of that as well
2: I know earlier, um, before we started, we, there was a mention of, uh, Peter Jackson's dead alive. And I think that the scene that is most obviously influential on that film is when they're stuck in the the work shed and, uh, he ends up using the lawn, (laughs) the lawnmower. (laughs) Um, I mean, there's, there's an actual scene in dead alive where they're in a work shed as well. And people are breaking through the lattice work and, and, he does end up using a lawnmower in a similar, more overblown fashion. So it definitely seems to have influenced as well as taken from other influences.
3: I would, I would bet good money that, um, that Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg are big fans of this movie. Um, because Mm. some of the stuff in Shaun of the Dead is also, um, feels very similar to this movie. Um, and yeah, the, even the, some of the zombies in the Peter Jackson style, uh, uh, Brain Dead, Dead Alive, um, have a similar makeup. I don't know dress, camera angle. I, I get a big vibe from uh, Dead Alive, which came out I think six years after this movie. All right. and it also, for that matter, Shaun of the Dead, Night of the Creeps, and um, Brain Dead are, are all romantic comedies fused with zombie movies, which, <laughs> um, which the, 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 again, the, the Shaun of the Dead guys even coined a phrase for it. The, uh, um, Zomcom or whatever, <laughs> but they, they, but they were far from the first uh, to, to actually do this. There's a, there's a few of them out there and night of the creeps had to be a, an early, uh, um, an early take of that. Cause in none of the Romero stuff, um, was there a, sort of goopy romantic element of the movie
2: and there's i think another movie that would play well with this in in that it's somewhat similar and specifically the opening is pretty similar is uh critters which also starts with an unusual sort of scene in space where the critters end up uh being jettisoned out of this ship and landing on earth and uh, you know essentially they are the slugs and Night of the Creeps um, mm-hmm. which I guess is Critters is, is exists because of Gremlins essentially um, but yeah I mean it's all of these movies <clears throat> I sort of have fond memories of these 80s movies that always seem to share similar conventions and that they all open on a Starfield shot with a credit and, you know, Earth. Um, movies like The Blob, re- the remake uh, by Chuck Russell mm. and the, the remake of Invaders of the Body Snatchers, Critters, um, Night of the Creeps, The Thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it just hits all of those marks for me. I mean, it. I, I guess that's where the nostalgia might come in a little bit just that it's the one case where I almost look for the conventions and, and embrace them. And, and, but it's not the same as, as, you know, seeing like, I guess even Slither does the same thing. It opens with a space shot and you see the asteroid coming by and and whatnot. So um, it's a very specific formula that I have no problem you know, with the fact that it's all shared and, you know, it just adds to it for me.
3: The one thing all of these filmmakers have in common is a huge love of B films, probably in the era of the over large nuclear animal, <laughs> you know, whether it's a giant praying mantis or giant ants or, you know, I mean, even James Cameron's Aliens was a. Used and borrowed a lot of the imagery from them, you know. I mean, a lot of these directors have a love of growing up on those films, and they bring them forward when they uh, when they make their films. And yeah, it's a interesting thing the way it keeps um, rolling over itself, decade over decade. Yeah.
1: Well, you mentioned um, the opening of Slither, which is essentially. Exactly the same opening of Night of the Creeps, which in turn is exactly like the opening of the Blob, basically, uh, where the guy finds the uh, canister. Uh, they just twist it from a canister to a meter meteor in the Blob. But uh, I mean, it's it, I, I, just, I just don't buy that James Gunn hadn't seen the film when he did Slither because it. it, it is about space slugs that, you know, come from space. The scene where they, you know, the meteor land is almost exactly the same. You know, two people in a car in the forest. And so, um, and they jump up your mouth. They infect you. So, um, it's, I, I just don't buy it. I, well, you know, yeah, I I, I, it. I, that was
3: news to me when you guys mentioned that before we started recording. I... I I would have swore that uh, that I read somewhere that um, that James Gunn was a fan of that film. Uh, nope. But you're saying that he Google it wrote Slither. Or well, I, without I any definitely
0: knowledge. I definitely read it like right before the show that he said he he hadn't seen it before he did Slither. And to me, that's the thing is that somebody like James Gunn, if he had seen it and if he had based it on that or was in any way influenced by it, I don't think he would be ashamed to admit it. He's not the kind of guy not who true. would hide his influences. So I kind of believe him. Uh, and, you know, even the the thing I found interesting is um, I hadn't rewatched Night of the Creeps since I had last seen Slither. And so I was kind of wondering, like watching it, thinking is there going to be more similarities than just that basic premise, and I, you know I really didn 't feel like there was that much else in common other than just kind of that intro and and the basic uh, plot i guess um, i don't know I, it's hard to say like uh, I, yeah I, I kind of believe them, but you know there's definitely well the slug thing is, all, is very similar
1: yeah but well, it all comes down to because I mean neither of the quid is not original idea. I mean, it's like we said. It's based on other conventions, and it's 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 using uh, similar uh, things from older film, like like the Blob, for instance. You know, that's how the original Blob opens. The meteor strikes the earth. The Blob comes out, jumps out of the meteor. That's exactly the same thing. So you know, you can't argue that you know. He was just paying homage to the blob, maybe with Slither, or something like that. Because, you know, neither filmmaker is being particularly original with the, their idea. They're basing it basing it on something else, basically. Right. So, um, so just, I mean, Fred Decker was, you know, he got there sooner, I guess. But and and and, and Night of the Quips being. The cult hit that it is, you know. Of course, fans of horror are going to notice the similarities and 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 point them out. And there's a there's a clip on YouTube uh, that was recorded at a Night of the Creep screening where uh, Fred Decker is asked about this, and he he actually believes Jim's gunn is telling the truth. I don't know. I don't know. There's something. I, don't, I A guy who. Who lives and breathes B movies? Hadn't seen this one. I'm not sure. I'm not
2: yeah. sure about. It. Yeah, true. Sensing a conspiracy theory.
4: <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. You know what but I would in, like to see uh, is those those aliens come back around and and come back full circle because those guys were fucking awesome.
0: Yeah, that would have been cool. Funny you uh, should
1: say do. that. <laughs> That's the original ending of the film. What's and you the can. Yeah, uh, the original ending for those who haven't seen it, uh, you can actually you can see it on YouTube if you go go there. Um the original ending of the film doesn't end with with the dog walking up to the uh to uh, Jason Lively and Jill Withlow and uh killing them, but um what happens is that they cut away from the house and we see Tom Atkins' character walking up, walking up the street smoldering obviously dead, and he um, walks out the street, falls down, his head splits open, and the creeps slither away, uh, and go into a gate, and they, you know, pull up, and you see a uh, cemetery, and then the camera pulls up, looks over the cemetery, and then these big uh, searchlights <coughs> flash on, and, and go around the cemetery, and the camera pans up again, and you see the spaceship flying, over the, uh, cemetery looking for the creeps. So, and that's how it, the original ending was. And, awesome. you, and if you catch it, if you catch it on TV, you can, uh, it's on that version. It's the TV version of, of the film.
0: According to, uh, Wikipedia, uh, Decker says that the reason that, Original ending didn't end up in the movie, is because he showed it to the studio before the effects were done, and they weren't happy with it, so they requested something else.
3: Yeah, yeah and the ending that is on there is fine. It, you know, a lot of horror movies end abruptly with a sort of lead into a sequel or a undoing of the heroic ending and just a quick snapshot, but the ending in Night of the Creeps feels exceptionally abrupt. Mm hmm. I mean, the house oh, yeah, blows it, it, up, it's on fire, she looks down at the, uh, one of the dog who's been running around for, uh, for, for a good chunk of the movie, zombie dog, and, uh, you know, boom, the movie ends, you know, and it, it implies that she's infected, um, and then it just ends. It's pretty abrupt.
1: Yeah, but it also wasn't kind of during that time, the slasher films of that time were; these endings were pretty common. I guess, and it's, it's an easy way out. I guess, um, and if you ha- if if you had to make up a new ending, you know, on the fly, it was probably the best way to do it. I guess, but but the uh, yeah, the original ending is uh, is pretty damn awesome. I so did find it here. here on, it was,
4: <laughs> I found it here on YouTube, so we could probably throw it in the show notes. But as I'm also looking. If anyone's really lazy, Night of the Creeps is all on YouTube, split up into like yeah. nine parts, so... Yeah. Can watch it that way, I guess. Yeah.
0: Here's a couple other uh, name references in the movie. The janitors are named Cunningham and Minor, which are directors oh, yeah. of Friday the 13th 1 and Friday the 13th 2 and 3. And the cat is named Gordon, which is a reference to Stuart Gordon.
1: Uh, Stuart Gordon. That's right, uh it's um, Steve Miner and Fred decker they worked together on a Godzilla film in nineteen eighty four It was supposed to be uh the first US version of of Godzilla in three d and uh, they got pretty close to it, but at that time it was way too expensive it cost like fifteen million dollars to make at that time, and that was way too much for the studio so they so nothing ever came out of it but uh, I managed to. Find a script on eBay that was good It's good stuff
3: well I got to give a shout out to that janitor though that janitor is is awesome <laughs> I think he only has one line of dialogue, but he gets to use it like six times <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it gets funnier every time he says it i I mean and the fact is that he keeps saying it and shaking his head and laughing it's it's a great demonstration of how uh, humor through repetition can uh, can really work because yeah, it, he says it once. It's a uh, whatever. It's kind of silly or whatever. And then it just keeps. To me, I don't know. It just keeps getting funnier. And you're you're kind of sad to see that guy go. <laughs> we could have got that line out of him two or three more times. I'm sure.
1: <laughs> I always thought that uh, his zombie version was the creepiest zombie of the whole film. I always thought that it was the only zombie in that film that creeped me out. His uh,
3: oh no 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 David Paymer David not is it David Paymer. Yeah. Um, the lab tech that forgets the security code. Um, mm. He's in all the like, David Mamet film. He's a character actor. He's around, but he's really young. And looking in this movie, uh, he's pretty gruesome with the uh, with the uh, surgical uh, scissors, like halfway autopsied, wandering around. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean the effects that they, they uh, don't spare the blood and splatter and the the uh, the. I mean. It's quite a bloody, gory movie for all of its sort of, you know, innocent, <clears throat> hold hands on the first date sort of charm. It's it's also a very <laughs> bloody film. There's a lot of exploding heads and uh, a lot of headshots uh, that, um, in fact, when I was looking on the IMDb, it looks like um, uh, Greg Nicotero, is that the the, the yeah. major... Major name in the uh, special effects industry who would have been like twenty when this movie was made is just an extra on you know in one of the scenes. I assume he was around there doing his thing, yeah, actually, learning, the, doing whatever.
1: The whole K B gang worked. The whole K and B gang, worked, uh, gang uh, Robert Kurtzman and Howard Berger, and uh, they uh, they all worked on. Uh, Worked on this film as uh, special effects guys, the makeup guys. So, yeah. yeah, so they were extras as well. They're all credited here as beta zombies. So, right. Yeah, but I I looked at David Paymer's IMDb thing, and he played a scientist twice that year in two films that failed miserably. And it was this one and Howard the Duck. You no, know, two of my two two. Very big favorites of mine, actually. <laughs> Love Howard the Duck. Ouch. <laughs> nah, it's, it's good stuff, man.
3: Don't
0: well, we do hate um, We should do that for another episode.
3: Like, yeah, yeah Howard <laughs> yeah. the Duck and the Explorers.
2: <laughs> or Howard the Duck and the Garbage Pail Kids, the movie.
0: Oh, yes. oh yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. <laughs> i down into minutia <laughs>
1: trivia here. <laughs>
0: So do we have any, I guess, final thoughts to wrap things up here for Night of the Creeps?
1: Uh,
4: I do not, although I'd like to say that, you know, like Omar has kind of convinced me I should maybe check it out, watch it again now that I've seen it once and sort of know what to expect and sort of get it or I'm kind of on board now. I'd like to look for maybe some more of the details. Like it strikes me as maybe sort of a, Joe Dante, the Burbs kind of movie, where you might pick up things the second time and the third time that you Absol- didn't the oh, yeah. first time. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'd like to, I, you know, eventually I'll uh, I will check this out again and probably have a lot more fun with it the second time than the first. That, and that's not to say I didn't like it because I actually did like it. Like I said, I got really into it by the end. Um, but uh, it took me a while to get on board.
3: Mm-hmm. The scene where. Um Tom Atkins has filling his apartment up with gas and he's sitting there with the old stove on or whatever and um, the main character comes over to his house and uh, tells him that he knows how to kill these things and that they're everywhere and and, and they got to suit up essentially and the way that scene is shot where he says he's basically ready to commit suicide and then he's like ah, fuck it, I gotta deal with this anytime that's in a movie for me, it gets a complete pass I, I mean, even, I, I hated the um shoot 'em up uh, movie, but the scene with uh, Clive Owen on the bench, and he just says bloody hell, and walks gets up, that's like, the movie's downhill from there, but that scene totally works, and uh, I just, because it never came up over the course, I had to throw it in there <laughs> alright,
2: well, I I do like that whole um uh, sort of character dynamic with the uh the young person who's discovering these things and and goes to this you know older person for help that is now just totally cynical and and uh you know done with life. It it, it kind of reminded me of like um another 80s horror favorite of mine, uh Fright Night with uh charlie brewster going to peter vincent to try and convince oh, yeah, him yeah. to uh kill the vampires the uh jerry dandridge and peter vincent is basically a coward in this and but he's sort of lost his uh sort of uh faith and in, in everything because he's the poor uh sort of uh I guess horror uh, guy that, you know, no one appreciates anymore because they've moved on, moved on to other things. So it kind of reminded me of that sort of uh, relationship when he has to go to the Tom Atkins character and convince him to come help him. Mm.
0: Yeah. All right. So um, I guess we'll move on then uh, get on to our discussion of gremlins Two: the new batch. Um so Andrew, are you going to bow out at this point or
4: I am. You guys have fun. I will definitely see you in the comment section. I'd like to I again I never saw Gremlins 2 and I wasn't able to get through the whole thing, so I'd like to finish watching it before hearing the discussion. So which I have procured a copy I will get tomorrow and watch it, and then I'll meet you guys in the comment section at movieclubpodcast.com. Sound good? Woo! Awesome. Good talking to you guys again. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. See you. All see right. you later. Bye bye. All
0: right. So um, Gremlins Two: The New Batch. I don't really remember who nominated this one. Does anybody want to kind of give a little uh, intro to this?
3: Okay, this was me that uh, paired it up, and uh, I, I, having not seen. Night of the Creep, well, okay, I saw Night of the Creeps in the last year, but uh, having not seen Gremlins probably since the theater, um, it just sort of stuck with me that it would be a good match to this. And when I watched the two of them over the last couple of days, they do fit very nicely together, not the least of which because they both have sort of uh, Dick Miller as the walk-on kind of character, and both of them are very much... Much more interested in spoofing and referencing than they are in driving their own story forward. And I can see how that can bother people, but there's something to be said for a director taking a lot of time and saying, yeah, my movie's going to be a collection of gags, but we are going to go balls to the wall with the gags. We're just going to go as far as we possibly can. We're going to break down the conventional structure. We're going to mock the conventional structure that these Hollywood movies are assembly line made. And when, I guess, Gremlins um, was such a big success, um, he basically took probably the reason why Gremlins was a big success was the somewhat conventional story of the of the um you know main character growing up and having to develop backbone and get the girl and deal with these problems and he just throws all of that out the window that i guess the studio gave him like i don't know how many million dollars a big big budget to make gremlins 2 and he makes one of the most studio unfriendly films um that is Possible, and I know we've talked a bit of, uh, on the movie club podcast with uh, Freddie got fingered as being almost a an aggressive joke uh, or, or or some sort of backlash to the studio just because he can, and that feels more than any of Joe Dante's other films. Uh, this movie feels like that, and I don't know that appeals to me uh, to some degree. That was uh, that was the reason why. I, it.
2: Well, I, I don't know if any of you guys have listened to the commentary for this. Uh, I, I've actually watched this movie a number of times, and I did see it in the theater when it came out as well. And I I listened to the commentary track a second time uh, this past week. And right off the top, Joe Dante introduces the film as one of the most um, uh, useless sequels uh in film history, he he says that the studio was basically desperate for a Gremlins 2 and they were willing to give him free reign and uh, he could do whatever he wanted. And he he didn't think that it, they needed a sequel, but uh, couldn't resist the idea of being able to do whatever he wanted. And I mean, right off the top, the fact that it opens with like a three minute Warner Brothers cartoon and not even as a separate, you know, opening to the film. It's, it's like the voice work for Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck are credited in the end credits of Gremlins 2. And it jumps right into the movie after that. It's, it's actually a part of the film. Um, and you know, we've seen him go on since then to do the Looney Tunes films, which I haven't seen, but, um, he's like a self-proclaimed Looney Tunes fan and it plays through the entire movie. I mean, that that opening pretty much sets the tone for the entire film. So I, it's, it, this is one case where I don't think it's, it's speculation to assume that this movie was made with the idea of kind of taking studio money and running with it. It's, it's documented in the commentary track that that indeed is the case.
3: <laughs> right.
0: Well, and yeah. it's interesting, too, because... Um, like, I, I didn't see this in theaters. I, I saw it. It must have been on uh, on VHS when it came out uh, later. But uh, I didn't really remember much of it. And just starting to watch it, that cartoon comes up. And, like, it still works. Yeah, I was being messed with right off the bat. I was like, is this Gremlins 2? Because, of course, I didn't actually uh, watch it on DVD. I had downloaded the movie. So my first thought is, is this even the right movie? Um, which, you know, so, of course, it worked very well. Uh, and then from then on, it's just totally, it has that cartoony feel the whole way through. And I was surprised, actually, at how, I mean, it's definitely a chaotic movie, but I was surprised at how much I enjoyed just the kind of, like, what's going to happen next kind of feel to it. Um, you know, I definitely remember, like, the, the one thing that stands out in my mind that I remember is, of course, the, the smart stripes Um, if, if that is stripes, uh, who, you know, he gets all intelligent and he's being interviewed on TV and whatnot, uh, which is fun. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the other things that have come up in the past, uh, I think at one point on the film junk podcast, we talked about that, that Hulk Hogan theater thing, which, uh, you know, I think if I had seen that in the theater would have been pretty awesome. Like that, the way Omar,
2: are you having a heart attack?
1: No, it's Kurt. <laughs> What's going on?
2: Uh, Sean's talking, and all I hear is this, like, creepy, heavy breathing as though he's <laughs> getting off to Sean's dissection of Gremlins too.
3: <laughs> well, it's not intentional. It's not intentional. I have a Darth Vader audition after the podcast. Either that or some creepy, uh,
2: Small, <laughs> uh, That's good. If it
3: is me, I apologize.
2: I I don't know who it was, but it, it was maybe it was me. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe it was me. And continue.
0: Um, I, I forgot what I was saying. Oh, the uh, the theater scene. Now, so you saw this in the theater. That must have been pretty cool when the. The, the outline of the gremlins are like behind the screen like did that work in the theater did that kind of feel
2: real? I remember thinking when the film skips and uh, melts I that something went wrong yeah but um, I know right. the, the video version is different they do uh, a, like a an effect where it seems like the gremlins are in your TV and I remember I saw it in theaters and then when I got it on VHS I was excited to get to the Hulk Hogan part again and it was John Wayne uh it does like a video thing and John Wayne comes on and and gives the gremlins hell and i remember as as a i, I don't know i must have been 12 or something or 13 being pretty fucking pissed off <laughs> i got john wayne instead of hulk hogan so <laughs> but pretty, on the dvd yeah, it, it's it's hulk hogan right but uh yeah it's it's yeah. I I remember I do remember there being a lot of kind of merchandising with this movie. I mean, that's one thing that they did do is they set the studio up for a good opportunity for merchandising because you've got all the different kinds of gremlins. So, you know, they kind of did them a favor there and maybe that was a way for them to get a little bit of leeway with the studio as well. I know Rick Baker did all of the effects for this one and apparently that's how they got him to come on because he... Wasn't really thrilled with the idea of just repeating, you know, the designs from the first one. So they just completely opened it up to him. He's actually a, a, a co producer on the movie and they just let him go nuts with uh, all of these different gremlins designs. I think the effects are pretty good in it.
3: Like yeah. the, I find it hilarious mm-hmm. that um, the. Cute aspect of um, Gizmo in the in the first one. uh, How this movie relentlessly mocks that. Mm -hmm. Uh, At one point, the uh, the big corporate boss, who's played by John Glover, I believe, says, "Oh, all I really see, I see that guy with suction cups staring out at you at a window, which was probably reality when people were going to see this movie." Mm -hmm. I mean, there was, and yet. They don't give Gizmo anything to really do in the movie, uh, which I think is great. I mean, they just the torture Gremlins him. <laughs> in the movie are far more front and center than they. The ratio of Gizmo <clears throat> to Gremlins is much more in favor of the Gremlins in the sequel than it was in uh, in the original. But
2: even with that, the parts with Gizmo in it are actually, I think, some of the best parts the things that kill me in this movie are one, I don't know. He's got this, you know how his Asian owner guy dies in the movie. Um, he's wearing gizmo is wearing an armband in memory, (laughs) like a memorial armband in the movie. He's got this like black band on. And when Billy picks him up, he's like, Oh, is that your little armband? (laughs) It's like a memorial armband, (laughs) which is ridiculous. And, um, of course, the whole uh, Rambo th- thing—it's yeah. not just the the visual gag of him with the headband or anything. It's the actual voiceover of you know hearing Rambo's voiceovers, and you know just the fact that it wouldn't have worked if it was just Gizmo. You know saw Rambo on TV and it mimicked it. It's the fact that he's tortured for like thirty minutes of the movie, and that's what leads him to revolt and when he actually does kill it's actually the stripes version in this is the spider one all oh, right and he Which is creepy. yeah and he lights that thing on fire and and you know billy picks him up and they're like what's what's gotten into him and they're like i guess they just pushed him too far <laughs> <laughs> and he's got that pissed off look on his face <laughs> yeah i mean that's there's genuinely hilarious moments in this movie I like when the fire alarm goes off and the that announcement comes on. <laughs> the best line in the entire film.
3: <laughs> Can you say it verbatim? That, I, I, like, what the actual fire alarm is? I can't,
2: but it's like fire, bringer of <laughs> life. <laughs> (laughs) the elemental god unknown (laughs) element
3: I
0: got it right here fire the untamed element oldest of man's mysteries giver of warmth destroyer of forests right now this building is on fire
3: (laughs) that is so sublimely hilarious for a fire alarm I believe also the washrooms have sensors in the doors you didn't wash your hands
2: (laughs) Or there's a funny one when he walks into the men's room it's like Welcome to the men's room.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's actually something I loved about this movie, too, is just the the fact that most of it takes place in this kind of wacky building where it's like, you know, there's like a science lab, but it's like supposed to be this media mogul guy. And like, it's just like anything goes in this building. And it just is perfect for what they're trying to do.
2: The interesting thing is the owner of the building, the media mogul guy, he's a slime ball, but he's likable. Like they didn't, they didn't just go and make him evil and, and, you know, a a bastard, but he is a bastard in in his, like (laughs) the way he's sort of like just very everyone's best friend kind of thing. And, but I, I actually like the character even though he, you know, is shredding memos and he's only concerned with his public image. And, um, you know, when he hears about, the fact that there could be casualties or, or or you know people getting hurt he seems concerned about them but he's more concerned about lawsuits and but i, I thought he was a, an interesting character he wasn't just a typical bad guy
0: uh, one thing also to to mention while we're on the topic of like sort of the self-referential ref, stuff there's this scene with leonard malton where he's reviewing gremlins before they kind of take over his studio or whatever which I thought was pretty funny and um,
3: well not, not to mention that Leonard Maltin is like a huge professed um, Looney Tunes fan as well he has all these sort of I don't know if he's written books on the Looney Tunes so there there's probably kindred spirits with Dante there yeah I'm, I'm wondering Leonard, like
2: he hated the first one oh. but I, I wonder if he actually liked yeah. this one because he's like an animation historian and maybe appreciated all of the looney tunes elements in it
3: there's so many Mm -hmm. i mean this is a lot of the gags like the way sam Raimi uses the three stooges in Mm -hmm. in all of his evil dead films so many of the gags in this movie are designed to feel like like there's even like these sort of boing sound effects often when people get hit with things
1: Mm
2: -hmm. um the mouse trap inside the sandwich when the, the gremlin, the the secretary is working, and you, all you see is a hand come up from the under the desk and takes the bun off her sandwich right. and puts a mousetrap on it and puts the bun back on, and off screen you hear like a snap and a scream. Leonard Maltin <clears throat> did give it three out of four stars for its references to other
0: films, Glover's imitation of Turner and Trump, and Lee's performance. So there you go. Yeah,
3: I guess. Yeah, I love the fact that at one point you see Christopher Lee, um, the, and this is I guess is somewhere in the middle of Christopher Lee's career. He's way past the Hammer horror, but he's way before sort of his blockbuster renaissance with the Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and Tim Burton and and all the stuff that he was uh, has done in the in the 21st century or whatever. But I just love the fact the uh, there's one image in the movie of christopher lee walking out of a room with a pod like an invasion from the body snatchers pod in his hand and they never really explain why he has that he just has it because Mm -hmm. why the hell not
2: and when he sees the uh um i think it was the the bat uh gremlin it does a a kind of push in close up on him and you hear this organ music, uh, which is kind of you know, like a reference to his Dracula days. Absolutely. But uh, one, uh, kind of self-referential moment that I really liked is when Billy is trying to explain to, um, um, uh, what's his name? Um, another Joe Dante regular. Robert
1: Picardo.
2: Yeah. Robert Picardo. The guy from Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, who actually did a voice in the game that me and Sean worked on as well um, nice. he 's trying to explain <clears throat> the gremlin uh, rules, and everyone starts picking apart all of the the rules and you know they eat after midnight and the whole idea of like something being caught in their teeth, and what if they Swallow it after midnight or the time zones thing yeah that 's good and how it, they just right up front address how ridiculous that rule is, <laughs> only to yeah, have yeah. a gremlin smash through the control console and latch onto the guy 's throat who 's questioning everything
3: yeah, yeah, just like deal with it and move on. I also liked the fact that they got the uh, they had some old school animation in the movie with uh, at one point the um one of the gremlins gets like in in this movie there's a beaker that does everything which is again another reference to looney tunes there's like spider beakers and brain beakers i can't remember how (laughs) one of them actually gets turned into pure electricity and he's sort of like an animated gremlin for the movie and i find it absolutely hilarious again it feels like something that Tex Avery would do or whatever, but they actually hold up a phone and he goes into the phone and they put him on hold, and you just see the Gremlin in the video phone with the muzak the hold muzak there, and he's screaming in pain because he's stuck with the muzak i just gags like that are just uh, they're hilarious
2: and there I, I think there's some pretty awesome puppet work in this movie too um. I mean, the, all of the gremlins are, are, they kind of have different looks to them even before they turn into spiders and and whatnot. They actually have kind of personalities and, and different features. And even that, just that moment where he puts the mouse trap on the sandwich, I was thinking how hard that must've been to actually like do that, not being able to see and, and like with just kind of like puppet hands, like taking a bun off, putting a mousetrap on, and putting a bun back on.
3: Jeez, they have a whole, like, um, Bubsy Berkeley musical number. Um, with. Uh, I guess they all have, like, these hexagonal tiles that form this Broadway show queen for the girl gremlin to, to come out of. I mean, it just... The level of anarchy in the, in this movie. I mean, if you are having a fit for why would the detective drive that kind of car in mm-hmm. Night of the Creeps, this movie <laughs> must have driven you absolutely batty. I mean, they just, <laughs> the gremlins just do whatever in service of the gag. Like, any sense of continuity or coherence or anything is all sacrificed in the name of right-at-the-moment gag.
2: And it, it's one of those movies where just automatically people zone out i think because it's like okay it's doing something weird there's singing there's dancing it's cartoony it's not what the first one was so it gets zoned out it reminds me of like spider-man 3 when peter parker starts dancing or singing and that shouldn't be in a spider-man movie so it's the worst spider-man movie there is for a
3: mainstream audience, it's crossed some sort of invisible line of credibility, even though right. you can buy the fact that a guy turns into a spider, don't have him dance.
2: Right. Even if it's like literally 40 seconds out of the two and a half hour running time, that little moment where he dances ruins the entire thing. Even though I know a lot of people have legitimate other problems with that movie, but there's, there's a lot of movies, I think, like that, where, and especially sequels, where... The idea of it being a sequel, automatically uh, people write it off. And for the many cases, they're probably right in that. But with this one, it's like it's remembered as being the horrible gremlins. Like the, the one, the sequel that was shit. And I, I just think that it gets overlooked because it's just so unusual and different. And if people actually had an open mind with it and didn't just constantly try and compare it to the first one, even though the first one has pretty cartoony elements in it, in terms of the gremlins, um, it's just that the, grem- the gremlins world is the entire film in this one. Um, but I, I mean, it just it's one of those things that just annoys me where it's like, as soon as there's anything kind of weird or, or uh, you know a musical number or whatever it's automatically written off. I mean, I'm pretty sure this movie is pretty much known as being a terrible movie. Everyone I've mentioned it to have said, you know, why would you watch that?
0: Well, I mean, it definitely bombed in the theaters and, but I mean, critically, it seems like it was kind of mixed. Like some of the people who didn't like the first one actually liked this one. Uh, But then I'm sure there's plenty on the flip side as well. Um, But yeah, it's, Uh, yeah I was just going to say i don't think it's it's not it's not like just a cash in sequel in the sense i mean for the studio it was but it's uh yeah I mean it brings something
2: different like it's a totally different sensibility it reminds me of Superman three the uh I, everyone hates Superman three i like it i don't i I actually enjoy Superman three and I can see how that one i i guess i won't I wouldn't get pissed if someone was like, I didn't like Superman three. I can see why people wouldn't like it. But I think beyond it being a Superman movie, the opening title sequence of Superman three is brilliant. And there's a lot of genuinely funny moments throughout that movie. And I think that movie pokes fun at the Superman film uh, as much as this does at the gremlins or more specifically pokes fun at the Superman sequel uh, as this does at the Gremlin sequel, and how they 're just not needed and and uh if we 're going to do it then we 'll do it in this completely different off the hook fashion
3: I would love to know, and i don 't know if it 's addressed on the commentary because I mean all of these guys still have careers in Hollywood, I mean even Joe Dante still makes the occasional studio film every now and again uh but I would love to know what they thought. Like Chris Columbus, like Chris Columbus, as in Home Alone, Mrs. Doubtfire, and eventually the Harry Potter films, um, wrote the original. But it almost feels like all the stuff around Gizmo and the sort of Christmas town, and you know, like the little quaint little town and the the sort of narrative arc. All of that feels like. Chris Columbus, whereas the Gremlin antics, like the sabotaging of uh, the Seven Dwarves and the 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 microwave scene and all the sort of you know sort of legitimately scary parts to a small kid uh, in the original Gremlins, like this, particularly that woman on the stairlift in the original, where she just jettisoned right out the uh, right out the window. Um, that all feels more like you know Joe Dante, and it's almost like they. This movie aggressively goes after almost Chris Columbus-style contributions to the first movie. I mean, you mentioned the, the rules, the three rules to explain to the audience how things work. But I found it far more aggressive uh, later on when um, uh, someone says something about Lincoln's birthday and uh, Yobie Cates says oh, I remember that horrible thing that happened to me on Lincoln's birthday, which was supposed to be like the big Christmas sequence that gave her character all this pseudo-complexity and, and angst in the uh, in the first one. And the other characters actually basically tell her to shut up and move on. I mean, the movie is so bah. relentlessly against that kind
1: of...
2: But I, th- I think the I think the first one that was played up as a joke as well. Though I, I don't know that that was supposed to be taken a hundred percent seriously. The idea of her father—I mean, maybe it it is—and I'm just watching it with a different perspective. But I, I felt that that whole story played kind of ridiculous in the first one as well. Um, but it, I mean, it could be um, them just kind of. Pointing out how ridiculous that sort of moment was,
3: um, well, they load the gun in this one they load the gun and charge both barrels to that sort of in the moment gimmickry and, and you know a lot of movies do that when the place is burning down, someone has to tell some story about their childhood it's It's one of the like the laziest um, Hollywood screenwriting tropes, and uh, I mean the whole concept of this. Supersized building is almost a stand in for Hollywood and you know, all of its different floors. And there's constant digs about um, them colorizing Casablanca and all these sort of things that were going on with the uh, Turner Broadcasting, Ted Turner at the time, where you know, they the, the, the studio system was churning out these soulless comedies and whatnot, not you know that hasn't changed much but at the same time ignoring its own legacy and this movie goes at that i don't think i saw much of that in the first film this movie goes really after the assembly line and and like you said before it goes out of its way to be as far from an assembly line product as it possibly can it, it, any time that it feels like it's on the path to be a standard run of the mill you know, blockbuster-ish type of movie. It 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 makes it, it be extra mean or extra insensitive or or whatnot, so that it doesn't feel like it's following in that direction. That's what I like about the movie. It's just really, um, yeah, it's it, it's it's a prank. I mean, the movie plays like a prank, but at the at the at the same time, there's actually some you know indignation, righteous indignation that the filmmakers are saying, you know. Um, the movies should not be a factory or a machine that you just crank them out again and again and again. They, they, they should be allowed to be more personal once again because, I mean, I'm sure this is one of Joe Dante's most personal films in his entire career where he was given free reign to do whatever the heck he pleased.
0: Well, and I think, too, when yeah. you were mentioning you were mentioning that Chris Columbus, that he wrote the first one, and this kind of seems to, you know, go against that. But also the first one has a lot of the, the sort of Spielberg uh, feel to it. And, you know, he was, well, I think he was executive producer on the second one as well. But um, I, if I'm not mistaken, I, I, I don't know, I was reading some stuff about this movie, and I think at some point there were accusations that, joe dante on this movie was kind of like toby hooper on poltergeist where people felt that spielberg had a lot of control in the first one uh where he quite obviously doesn't have much to do with the second one at all i don't know if you guys heard anything about that but
2: i haven't heard anything about that but i mean i can see spielberg liking the second one yeah and being behind it i mean he produced the animaniacs so that's true
3: yeah, you know, there's always a side of Spielberg that wants to get down and dirty and cruel and mean and and, and childish, but uh, Spielberg always, you know, reins it in and screws up his own <laughs> movie by getting an unrealistically happy ending tacked onto it. Whereas the ending in, in Gremlins two, um, it, it, it it continues to be a mocking, cynical train wreck, you know what I mean? Right to the very end. Sure, they kill all the gremlins and, 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 you know, save the day or whatever, but the movie still feels like it, it it feels like it's mocking the happy ending. Like you get this promotion, you get that promotion. We'll all do this together. Everyone will do this. And of course it ends with, with the, you know, Donald Trump gazillionaire, millionaire guy saying, I'm going to manufacture small town um, you know I'm going to make basically a small town theme park mini mall which is of everything that the movie stands against so in in reality you know wiping the gremlins out and letting the uh, businessman go back to his uh, his job of carving up the world and turning it into these soulless mass marketed creations it actually ends up being a very unhappy ending to the movie not only that the two People that are supposed to represent dignity or, or or small real, you know, not fake people. The uh, the two main characters, they both buy into the sellout. Oh yeah, sure, we'll 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 help you uh, rebuild our town in this mockery. You know, it's actually quite an angry ending. So,
2: Omar, are you? Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like we keep cutting you off, Omar. Any any thoughts on this?
1: Um. Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I'd like to begin to say um, I saw this film for the first time in the theater when it came out, and I hadn't seen it since then uh, until I watched it a couple of weeks ago. And I apparently forgotten about it so much that I was just flabbergasted while watching this because this movie makes no sense whatsoever in in terms of uh, cuz i remembered it as a conventional film but not just joe dante going balls out and 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 saying screw you to the to the studio and like uh ju said uh, in the last podcast that gremlins 2 was a sequel that nobody wants to make and and I, I, I can see it in the film that he really doesn't want to make this movie and the only and, – and the way he kind of uh, preempts the, the production of a number three is to make this movie that uh, – he, he probably knows that it was going to flop. I, I kind of have the feeling that he, he was trying to prevent that a third one would be made. By going balls out and just doing what the fuck you wanted, and you know, throwing in scenes that have no bearing on the story, especially when the when the gremlins turn loose and you you see the um, Phantom of the Opera scene, you know, all of a sudden they cut to a scene where the Phantom of the Opera gremlin is playing uh, the organ, and it, it turns into a Muppet scene basically, and uh, so he just go, goes back and forth, back and forth. In, into scenes that he just he said you know fuck it just shoot this this is a funny idea let's shoot this and 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 I I was it's the kind of film you have to watch over again to really appreciate it because I had I had forgotten how crazy this film was and so I was just I didn't know what the hell was going on most of the time I just said what the hell Uh, so um yeah that's um but but also I could see uh, the jabs he was uh, pointing towards, the, you know, corporate America and all that stuff. Because Joe Dante never makes a movie without some sort of message, uh, and uh, so that 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 part was really obvious in this in this film. But um, and also his love for like you know the, the older films and looney tunes and all that and uh, and i saw that chuck Jones did the uh, opening sequence the looney tune se- sequence in the film yeah so he went back and 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 did you know got the people to do it and uh and even the casting of uh, grandpa monster in in was that, didn't he play grandpa monster in uh
2: no, he's he's uh, modeled after Grandpa Monster, but he's actually a character actor that's <laughs> in a bunch of things. He's
1: not the same actor. No, no. Robert oh, okay, okay. is the actor.
3: He's he's yeah he's in loads and loads and loads of stuff. But
2: it's no, clearly okay, okay. modeled after Grandpa Monster.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. So, um, so I didn't really know what to, what to think when I watched it again. So. So, you guys are obviously more in on the joke than I was when I watched the film, so uh so yeah but speaking in the
3: messaging in the movie the uh like you said like it's not a Joe Dante movie without a message did you find the messaging thing a good thing, or did you find it distracting
1: uh it's a good thing, but I think it probably went over the heads of the attendant you know viewers I mean, it was a kids movie and and uh, I don't think they really got the whole, whole corporate America, you know, the Reaganites and uh, all that stuff. But uh, yeah.
2: But the good there thing with that is th- it's it's a live action cartoon, so the kids can enjoy mm-hmm. the the visual gags,
1: And the
3: slapstick, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: and the different types of gremlins. Story,
3: apparently, with the first one. Um, At some screening where Joe Dante was in attendance, um, uh, a mother, you know, grabbed her—I don't know—eight-year-old daughter or something—and hauled her out of the theater. And and I guess the director was in the lobby. Who knows whether this is urban legend or not? uh, And said, you know, how can you make this violent movie for children or whatever? And uh, you know, meanwhile, the, the the girl was begging to go back in the theater to finish watching the movie. And of course, he plays that scene, he puts that right into to the sequel, where, uh, well, when the gremlins take over the movie theater, the, you have a mother come out with her child and start giving the Usher hell. Um, mm-hmm. So The whole thing feels like uh, Joe Dante and company, like, like Jay said, on some extent, it was let the special effects technicians go wild and experiment and do whatever they feel like doing, uh, which explains all the weird and wacky new gremlins and things. But on the other hand, it it seems like uh, Joe Dante is is working some angst out. I mean, he's having a lot of fun doing it, but at the same time, I think he's working out some serious beefs that he has with the industry that he works in right in the plot of the movie and in the in the structure. Uh, which you could say that it's surprising that this wasn't a career killer
1: yeah. for him. Well yeah, he didn't work on another movie for three years after this. So
0: But interesting to note that I think the next movie he did was Matinee, which was written by the same guy who wrote Gremlins 2. So
1: and also bombed so and that uh, that film was actually more personal for him because that was basically him going back to when he was a kid, going to the movies and you know all the William Castle stuff and uh, and, and stuff like that. But but uh, you were uh, one thing that I noticed. Uh, I, I I don't know if there was the intention or something. Well, one could look at it at, at that way that they you could you could see this film as a huge merchandise um, commercial, basically, because um, they throw Mogwai front and center, make him do all, all these cute and cuddly things, which really bug me. and, uh, and then you have all these different <coughs> crazy-looking um, gremlins that are just ripe for toys and action figures. And and you could look at it that way, but I don't know if the, that was the attention of Joe Dante or that, like, I don't know if he, Jay or Kurt said it, uh, that was something that the studio wanted, and in turn he could do whatever, whatever the hell he wanted. Because uh, I felt like they were pushing Mogwai way, way, way too much into uh, making him. Far cuter and smarter and almost human, and and, and when you stop to think, it is it, it, a kind of film you, you can you have to leave your brain at the door, in some sense, because if you really believe that this creature you know understands human speech, can uh, communicate to humans in a very easy way. And they talk. I mean, they 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 can make themselves understandable to humans, which is for an animal quite amazing. And um, but really, I thought they that.
3: Oh, go ahead. ahead. I thought they really backed off on that. And like in the first one, the Gizmo is everywhere, and you know he's doing things like driving little toy cars and doing all these cute little things. Whereas in this movie for most of the movie he's actually you know kicked or punched in the face or locked in a uh, in the vent- ventilation shaft or um, being photocopied yeah, or, yeah, there's uh, they're giving him needles I think at one point um, I find that the the movie actually any march- merchandising opportunities and not getting into the whole garbage pail thing that came up earlier, uh, garbage pail kids. Th- th- they made everything so vulgar that it was unmerchandisable. I mean, the whole thing of why how successful Gremlins and how many Gizmo dolls were sold. And I don't think there were a lot of Gremlins dolls sold after the first Gremlins movie. There was all the the cute little plush. Gizmos, And I I thought in this movie, he went out of his way to make it un-product placement. And there is a lot of literal product placement in the movie, but it's always at an inopportune or awkward time. It's almost like he's calling. He's like, I'm daring you to say that us putting your product in this context is good for your product. You know,
1: I I can't think of
3: I saw it five or six times when they, when they, um, you know, when there was a brand, like an actual brand in the movie, but I can't right off the top of my head now recall any of those circumstances, but none of them were overly flattering
1: to the product in any way, shape or form. Right. I I noticed how, um, incredibly gooey and slimy this film was. And, you know, I wouldn't say gory, but, uh, you know, uh, when every time the um, gremlins, you know, uh, are born, basically it's just this huge amount of slime and goop and disgusting shit just dripping everywhere, and uh, that was kind of uh, I was surprising for me to see, especially for a. I'm sure they were aiming it to a much younger audi- audience this time that uh, they were uh, doing that, that type of stuff, because especially like the spider sequence and uh, and all these pots and gooey shit going on. So it was, in the end, especially when they all melt in that fucking green slime. So it was uh, surprising to me to see it like that. It was uh, gorier than I remember it to be.
3: I still find that spider thing rather creepy. <laughs>
2: I think the original gremlins had quite a bit of goo and and gore as well. Um, I know that the the last sequence is when the gremlin is, uh, the main guy goes into the fountain is pretty gory for what it is. But, but I mean, I think
1: it was so much more in this one.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it, it simply comes down to the first one was the world of gizmo and the, you know, Billy and them. And this one is built around the gremlins. This is their yeah. kind of movie. And I do think that the merchandising was probably in their minds. And I do think that in this case, it fell on the gremlin side. And uh, they yeah. exploited that end of the merchandising for this one. But I'm pretty sure the whole idea of different gremlins and whatnot came directly from the involvement of Rick Baker. Like it just grew from that. Um, I mean, it is unusual for, you know, a, the makeup person, effects person to be a co-producer on a film. Mm. Yeah.
1: Uh, it's true. Well, um, I'm surprised that they, um, I'm surprised that they, uh, didn't spawn a t- like an animated TV show out of this. It's like the, the perfect time for an animated TV.
0: Yeah, it does seem kind of weird that there wasn't one. I mean, I almost feel like I could picture it in my head, but yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, so I guess to to wrap things up here, I just wanted to point out one of the, apparently one of the taglines for this movie. I don't know, you guys can give me your thoughts on what this is supposed to mean, but take your batch to see the new batch. Is that supposed to mean take your bitch to see the new batch? Or is no, that it supposed means
1: take your kids. Oh, okay,
0: because I that could, that could see that being interpret, in, interpreted in multiple ways. But, um,
1: well, today.
3: today it'll
0: probably Yeah, maybe back then it wouldn't have been a common... Uh,
3: well, that was the joy of the 1980s was um, movies that were ostensibly marketed as kids' films, like on the Fred Decker side, The Monster Squad, I mean, it's undeniably a kids' movie, but the kids are constantly smoking and swearing in the movie. It seems like a lot of that has been sanitized out, and I think something like Gremlins 2 is sort of the high watermark of the sort of vicious anarchy that you could put into a children's film. Um, <laughs> I mean, love it or hate it, it was sort of a high watermark of of goofy, practical prosthetics and goop uh, children's movies. You know, now it would be something, uh, you know, not to sound like an old, you know, one of my day, blah, 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 but uh, it would be something like Flubber, which is all CGI, and and, uh, it, it doesn't have that visceral cruelty as something like the um, the spider or the wacky weird sexuality of the, the, uh, the final girl gremlin, um, essentially raping Robert Picardo to the point (laughs) where he actually is. Well, whatever. I'm just, this is my lot in life. (laughs) It's just a baffling ending of the movie, which I think underscores how, uh, that the, um, Joe Dante and company think that, um, they wanted to give the movie as unhappy even if it has the the basic shell of a happy ending they wanted it to actually be as cruel and unusual as the rest of the movie it's got a pretty unhappy ending
0: hey yeah. here, here's a here's a, a little fact i'll throw out that i just found too a factoid a little factoid for you Apparently, the classic scene in the original Gremlins where Kate explains how her father died in a chimney dressed as Santa Claus was disliked by both Spielberg and the studio, but Dante liked it and insisted that it should stay. So I wonder if that other thing you were talking about, Kurt, in Gremlins 2 was was a reference to The other way
3: from how I thought about it. (laughs) Yeah,
2: like so that was his response to them trying to shut him up. See, but that's why I think that it was intended to be humorous in the first movie yeah. because he, he probably wanted it to stay because it's such a ridiculous, it's playing in the first movie, it's playing on the idea of having a story like that. And in, because it's a Christmas movie, the story is her dad coming down the chimney as Santa or falling off the roof or whatever it is, which is ridiculous. And I think in the first movie, it's supposed to be played as kind of a, a shot at that convention. Right. And that's probably why they wanted it pulled from the first movie.
0: Yeah, it so said they didn't think it was either clearly funny or sad. They didn't choose a side, so it was kind of like vague.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, but, that's
3: good though. <clears throat> I mean, vague is good. And in, in fact, you know, you could argue that this was the movie that Gremlins One wanted to be, but was constrained. It was only ironically from the commercial success of the comp, all the compromises made in the first one that you could make such a spectacular failure with the second one.
2: And, but the thing is the second one wouldn't be as awesome if it didn't have the first one. And if the first one didn't follow that more typical path for them to stray from it in the second one. I, I like the I first you're Gremlins. Absolutely right. um,
3: you're absolutely right. Like, I mean, it would it would be even more baffling. At least you have some sort of groundwork with the first film
2: that you can uh, jackhammer to, the shit out of. <laughs>
3: exactly, <laughs> exactly. If you came in like that right out of the gate, yeah, it would it would be even more baffling. No, I, I like the first one as well. It, it, but um, you can also stand back and look at how. Often, how sickly earnest the movie is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, um, mm. final thoughts on uh, Gremlins Two, people?
2: I think if anything, it just it one thing it captured uh, perfectly was the uh, love for frozen yogurt in the <laughs> late eighties. <80s. laughs> I remember when that stuff came out and. My parents would get some Oreo frozen yogurt and it was like the new thing. Loved it. Frogerd. Yes. It <laughs> <laughs> is good stuff.
3: Well, doesn't the Simpson yeah. the Simpsons do a parody of the Gremlins uh, of the um the shop owner with Frogerd yeah. in the uh yeah. with the cursed Frogerd in uh in in the Simpsons. <laughs> Maybe they were playing into both of uh, I have no idea when that episode was made, but um No, again, like if that was a product placement for, what was it, Yogan Fruz or whatever the company that um, was in every mall in in the 80s and maybe still is, uh, I mean, they they equate that with rats and all the food. Like all of the Mm. gremlins are – like so if that was a product placement, what what feeling does that give you for that product, which is great. (laughs) I
1: I think it's, it's fabulous. Omar? yeah. Uh, give us, give yeah. us your
2: final thoughts.
1: <laughs> final thought was shit. <laughs> well, uh, it's um, like I said before. I really have to um, watch it again. I have to get myself a copy of the uh, special edition with the uh, commentary because Joe Dante does great commentaries, by the way. And um, so I really need to watch this film again, you know, knowing that. The whole film is a joke, basically. And then I will probably appreciate it more than I did when I watched it again a few weeks ago and didn't know what the hell was going on, basically. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but, you know, other than that, it, it, it had some, you know, great scenes. It's it's uh, The effects of this, this film are fabulous and, uh, and uh, just amazing what they could do back in those days. Uh, when they all had you know just rubber and and wires to do this stuff so um, yeah so in, in, in in that sense it's really good stuff in there but uh, but uh, like I said I really have to watch it again to really appreciate it
2: in, in the commentary they talk about how they shot like uh, I don't know a, a month with the cast and did all of that stuff but then they had like three weeks of just puppet shoot mm-hmm. Um, And just thinking about that, like just that much time dedicated to just shooting puppets and how much how much would come out of that three weeks of just shooting puppets. And you look at what's in the movie. And I think to myself, all the stuff they probably were coming up with in the moment and like just out of the whole you know, feeling of just being stuck with these puppets and then, you know, being like, oh, it'd be funny if we made it do this or see if you can make it look like it's doing this. Or So I, I can see a lot of that coming out of just those weeks with the puppets and just kind of coming up with stupid, uh, whatever the, the funniest ideas would be. And But I, I like mm-hmm. in this movie, when you, you talked about Gizmo being upfront and used more, one thing I liked in this movie is they tried to make him do more things without being concerned about how stupid it looks. And they have the whole thing, the one shot of him walking away like after the, when the Chinese shop is being demolished, there's a shot of him, an alleyway and gizmo like walking down the alley and it looks ridiculous. And the scene where he's dancing and even though it can be played up as being, you know, the cute stuff and, and the awe and everything. I think that, you know, they're probably just like, let's try and make it, let's try and make them dance. And then you watch that and they probably just laugh their asses off at how ridiculous it looks because it it looks ridiculous. And I mean, it's the equivalent of the opening titles of Alf when he like sets the <laughs> camera down and runs out to do the family picture and it's a clearly a midget. But, um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think there's a lot of cool stuff in the movie and I hope people uh, give it another look saying
1: all
0: right. Well, um, so that wraps up our discussion of gremlins 2." And uh, looking ahead to the next episode of the movie club podcast, it looks like uh, voted on by you, the listeners uh, we are going to be talking about 10 things I hate about you starring uh heath ledger and julia styles and joseph gordon levitt and also uh we've decided to pair with it um what did we decide on gus van sant's um my, my own, own private, private I, my own private idaho so um go out get copies of these watch them and we'll be back next month to talk about those and I guess we should mention uh, we are... It looks like we may not have a poll for the episode following that because we're talking about doing an all-aliens episode, the Alien Quadrilogy. Right? Are we are We still down with that?
4: Yep. Uh, yep. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, that I think that will be a pretty interesting one. Even it's going to be a
2: long...
3: Yeah, it's
0: gonna be tough to talk about four yeah. movies, but I think a lot of people will be interested in that. So um, I know especially.
3: that I know that Andrew is a champion for the Juné one, one, number four, and me too, me too. I'm a huge fan of number three. Um, it's almost like everyone can get behind their favorite (laughs) their favorite of the series or or one that they feel is misunderstood I don't know yeah Mm
0: -hmm. for sure Um, so uh, I guess stay tuned to movieclubpodcast.com for um, I guess for info on upcoming episodes but also after you've listened to this episode if you have your own comments or thoughts on the movies uh, feel free to Uh, Jump in on the comments and let us know. And, um, yeah, I guess that's about it. Other than that, check out, uh, you know, Row 3, Twitch, Film Junk, the documentary blog, and uh, email any suggestions you might have. Any other final thoughts, guys? Done. Mm
1: -hmm. Nope, I'm good.
0: All right. Well, uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time here on the Movie Club Podcast. Peace.